This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We have heard uh, <laughs> this has uh, been one of the most surreal uh, election cycles, the American election, of course, that took place on November the 8th of last year now. And uh, the the campaigns before that and uh, the accusations and counter accusations and the innuendo and the uh, quote unquote facts that were uh, stated by the candidates. And uh, it has uh, spawned, well, skepticism, first of all. Uh, but it's also spawned a, a, a new phrase in, in part of our, our lexicon now, and that's fake news. And everybody's talking about it now. Everybody references it right now. What is it, and what are the impacts that have uh, seemingly pervaded our discussion about politics as of late because of this idea of fake news? What does it mean to discuss uh, politics going forward? Is this the new uh, bellwether? Is this the new uh, level? Is this the new comparator? Or is it a phenomenon and a fade? I don't know. Well, I want to talk to our next guest about that exactly. Lindsay Finneman-Gingra is a director of Integrated Digital Communications and Campaign Enterprise Incorporated and joins us on the Bill Kelly to sh- talk about fake news. Lindsay, first of all, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Nice to be. talk to you. Let's, uh, let's talk about the, de- the, the definition of this right now because I, I, I get the impression, Lindsay, sometimes as I listen to people use this phrase and throw it around so much, it's it's really almost in the eyes of the beholder, isn't it? Yeah, it's become sort of a catch-all term for uh, sort of internet media, I would say. So it started, we saw uh, it being talked about during the Trump and the Clinton campaign, and there was a, a lot of online media that was just completely fictitious and, and frankly just created to uh, for ad revenue by a group of people in Macedonia. Uh, and now it's sort of become this catch-all term for sort of slanted journalism that is seen to be left or right or sided, that it's not real news, it's fake news, but it's sort of lost its actual real meaning, I'd say. And, and we've seen examples of this. I mean, if you scroll down, spend 30 seconds on Facebook, uh, and you look at some of the posts up there, and, and, and you know, these these outrageous headlines about political figures or, or, or world leaders, whatever the case might be, uh, you know, that they did this or they did that or they spent money on this. Uh, I always look for the tagline to see, okay, what's the source? And it's something I've never heard of. And then um, the first reaction I always have is, okay, i got to question the authenticity here. Uh, you know, is this made up? Uh, is it, and, and, and I guess we don't know really, do we, because of the influx of information that's coming at us now. Yeah, I mean, so I think there are like two trends there of, uh, so yes, there's so much information coming at people that people aren't discerning where sources are coming from anymore. So if you see it on your Facebook, you sort of you start to see CNN and this other news source is the same because you're not clicking on them often. You're just scanning the headline, and so people are starting to see them as real. But the other trend that's actually a bit more disturbing to me is that because all the economy on this is the same, real media and fake media make money the same way. They sell ad space. Yeah. So really, their incentives are very much the same, which is to make you click. So real media have been pushed to sort of jack up headlines and go for angles that are, you know, sort of scandalous because they're driven by the same economy as these so-called fake outlets. Well, and, and let's face it, even even real media or mainstream media or whatever uh, you know, phraseology we want to use here is now being driven onto into to digital media now anyway. I mean, you know, how many newspapers have gone out of print but they're still on digital? Uh, so they're 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 ball, all playing in the same ball field now, aren't they? Exactly, they're competing for the same eyeballs and they're competing for the same clicks. And without getting too too nerdy and too down to how uh, outlets make money online, they're all competing for the same ad dollars, right? So they all need to 
steal your eyeballs away. And that's really led to the rise of sort of sensationalism in, in news media. How do you how do you determine exactly what's happening here? And and I guess the most troubling thing from from our standpoint in, in, in this era of media, and I spent some time in political life as well for a number of years ago, is, is when stuff like this comes along, you have to wonder about, first of all, authenticity and sources, but maybe more importantly right now, and based on some of the reaction I've seen over the last 12 months especially, Lindsay, is... Do people care whether or not it's true, or is it just a headline or a story that validates the way they want to feel? Yeah, that's 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 the problem. Is you know, people who care about the media care about and care about what's truth, but the general population, the the huge percentage of of us in Canada and America and around the world, really do just care about the headline and what it aligns to their values and their beliefs. And we've sort of lost the ability to read something. Uh, you know, see if it, you know, it can change our mind. We really just want to read something that confirms what we already believe. So we click on it or share it or whatever, now, without necessarily, well, let's use one of the other phrases that's uh, that's very popular, fact-checking. Uh, we don't bother to fact-check. We just say, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I knew it. I knew it. And that that article or that post uh, substantiates my point of view, so so that's that's what I'm going to embrace. Exactly. I think we're all guilty of this. I've retweeted things and shared things without reading to the bottom of an article. Uh, we leave, you know, just-in-time lives. We're on our mobile devices. We see a headline that agrees with what we thought that morning or talking to our friends about the other day, and we share it. And we sort of perpetuate this, this fake news cycle, you want to call it that. And, and the presidential election, I, pro- I think, is probably a, a, a very clear example of that. Uh, because there were accusations, of course, about Trump using fake news to, to try to substantiate some of his policies or uh, proposed policies, obviously, at that stage. And and there were these fact-checkers that would publish stuff in the Post or in the New York Times or whatever the case might be to say he, he lied about this, he lied about this. It didn't seem to have an impact on people. No, I mean, people believe Trump, they're going to believe Trump, and they're not going to be re- swayed by reason or fact. People generally, though, this isn't a new trend, people generally aren't swayed by reason or fact. They're, they're swayed by emotion. And so the thing with Trump was he tapped into an emotion. Encountering emotion with reason and fact will almost never work. It doesn't, and it never has worked. So this isn't new. This is actually just uh, how people work. But how far down this road have we gone, Lindsay, when we have a situation, for instance, where, uh, well, Kelly Leach, of course, is running for the leadership of the Conservative Party yeah. here in Canada right now. And, and one of her campaign stalwarts is, is a guy who basically brags about the fact that he makes up news, that he makes up fake news, and he, he, he you know, just conjures up numbers and, and puts posts out there. Uh, there was a, an era in politics and in public life not too long ago that if somebody was exposed to be doing that, they would have had to resign, the, the candidate would have been shamed. Uh, he's celebrating the fact that he's good at it, and nobody seems to care now. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a bit of uh, so many people, you know, we talk about that and we talk about Kelly Leach's campaign, but I think general Canada doesn't follow that. So there is outrage, I think, with, you know, there's sort of a code of conduct in politics and the media and then, you know, PR that you don't do that. But the general public doesn't really attune, isn't attuned to that and doesn't care. And the general public does, you know, there is a group that 
here's Kelly Meek and here's what she's saying. And, and they, you know, agree with her. So I think that, you know, this sort of the outrage is also outside of the mainstream discussions of Canada and the U.S. For the general public, but, uh, you know, yeah, for those public. that follow politics, etc., uh, clearly, from a, a strategic standpoint, I mean, I can understand why it's happening. In other words, you want to appeal to the base of whoever your candidate is, whatever their their their, their policies might be. You want to ensure that there's going to be a solid base there. Uh, and that was always a, a, a challenge, I guess, in past campaigns. Now, it seems as if, well, there are no parameters right now. We're just going to feed them whatever they want to hear, and that's going to solidify our base. And it happens at both ends of the political spectrum. It does. I mean, frankly, it happens... Uh, throughout uh, in politics and then in, uh, you know, what I do day to day in PR campaigns, we do that too. Uh, we talk to the people who want to, who want to hear us and we get them to share our message and we get them, and we use their channels to deliver our message to other people. It's, uh, it is a trend and I, I don't, it's not one that I see going away. It's, it's really going to get worse as, uh, as the media starts to die, as real media loses, you know, money and can't put out a daily print paper. It's a trend that's going to continue. Are we lazier now than we used to be? Do we bother to, to check whether there's an authenticity to what we're reading? Uh, or are we just too busy that we'll just read it and, and take it at face value? I don't know if it's laziness. I don't, I don't think it's that. I think we have more information than ever before. And it's just, it's harder for people who are concerned about other things in their daily lives to take that extra step to make sure that, you know, the news that is being delivered to them is real. They've always just assumed it. They've never had to worry about it. There are many things to worry about in day, you know, a day for an average Canadian. I don't think figuring out whether their media is real media is on the top of their concern. And I think that's understandable for most people. It's, uh, you know, it's sort of our job as people who, who shape the media and who, who use these tactics to sort of try to keep some moral center in what we're doing, I think. If we're going to attempt to find that moral center and to try to police this, uh, who's who's going to be the adjudicator? It doesn't seem anybody wants to take up that mantle. No, I mean, the truth is there's money to be made by uh, not adjudicating, right? And that's the problem is that, you know, Facebook and Google are making money off of this, so they're not going to police it. Uh, politicians are winning elections through it, so they're not going to change it. So is it the government's job to set in? That's that's a hard sort of uh, mandate to put to the government of you decide what is real media. Well, that becomes censorship at a certain point, too. So it's hard to think who is going to police it. Yeah, I don't think you're going to get too many hands up when you say, hey, we, we should institute government control here. I don't think too many people want to get on that road. Because how, how can, uh, let's face it, governments are by definition themselves political. So, so any, any attempt to try to exert any pressure or set parameters there is going to be seen to be very subjective, isn't it? I think we want to become Soviet Russia, where, uh, you know, what is said and controlled is controlled by the government. So you really are left with, so are we trusting Facebook and Google and, you know, these online ad deliverers to, to police it? That's where we are right now, right? There was so much outcry that, outcry that Facebook really had to take control of this. But the truth is, a lot of us own Facebook stock and we want it to return. We want, you know, we want the stock prices to keep climbing and that means they need to sell more ads. And so there is a, a financial pressure there to for them not to stop. Without getting into the uh, the nuts and bolts of the uh, the BuzzFeed thing from a couple of days ago about Donald Trump, I, I found it was uh, interesting, uh, to their justification for releasing the, the, the entire document with, with uh, n- numerous, uh, of course, unsubstantiated uh, facts, and I use that term loosely. But their, their rationale for it, is, as you know, Lindsay, was, well, we wanted the people to, we were just going to put it out there and let the people decide and let them decide to fact check this, which I thought was a, a, a rather cavalier way of suggesting this because as we've just been talking about people don't take the time to do any any sort of vigilance on this stuff exactly and this is where i think uh, you know 
Donald Trump was actually right on this. Uh, you know, I know we, we make fun of him, but BuzzFeed acted like fake news. They, they put it up online because they knew they were going to get traffic to it. There was no journalistic standards no, uh, behind that. They wanted the traffic and they wanted to be in the news. So they were, you know, they were clickbaiting. Well, you know, at that point, you do become fake news, BuzzFeed, uh, and you do, you know, put other media uh, under, you know, harsh light. It, it's, it, it wasn't great what they did. I don't agree with it. I don't think it followed journalistic standards. But from a financial point of view, we know why it did it, because we all went and clicked on the link and we all went to BuzzFeed's site. It, it seems as if this is the new normal, though. And, and, and you again, we seem to be centering an awful lot of uh, the discussion about fake news around Trump. But, I mean, he was uh, a, a guy who is right now, uh, you know, trying to put himself out there as a victim of fake, new, of fake news. Uh, but when it came to, for instance, the birther scandal that, that, he, that he really embraced, I mean, he was a perpetrator of it. So, I mean, this is, I guess it cuts both ways. And those uh, who live by the sword can die by the sword. Exactly. Fake news is not a left or a right political spectrum issue. Uh, we are all on all sides of political spectrum, like to sort of hear what we want to hear. He just, you know, Trump has this uh, a way of switching the channel and not getting called for it, right? So fake news helped get elected, and now he's against fake news. And probably tomorrow when it's for, it works for him, you'll be for fake news. And, you know, the environment we live in is, if media don't have credibility and can't call him on that, then he gets to do that and gets keep doing it. So it is sort of this vicious cycle we're stuck in. But is this not just perpetrating this this seemingly basic distrust that the public has for politicians anyway? Distrust for politicians, distrust of media, and sort of these influencers and the elites, if you want to call them that. I think it does sort of continue to drive a wedge between average Americans, average Canadians, and politicians and media. Well, and we saw that with the press conference with Trump the other day, didn't he, where he basically used that as a platform to attack the media for this. The media fought back and attacked Trump for this. And, and uh, to, to channel Shakespeare for a second, a pox on both your houses. You're both guilty of it. Exactly. And meanwhile, you know, there are Americans who, that this doesn't affect their day-to-day lives and would probably prefer to have the president talking about health care and about, you know, jobs. And here they are, the media and Trump are busy, you know, going back and forth with each other, and there are real issues that America has to face. So I do think people, it does continue to drive a wedge between people, politicians, and the media. Where are we going on this? I watched uh, Seth Meyers' show the other night uh, on NBC, and he decried this whole thing and said, let's call fake news what it is, that they are lies. It's not fake news. That's a, it's, it's a way of trying to smooth things over. And, and, uh, you know, we, we, and there are others that are calling for an end to this whole thing. But if it is such a useful tool right now for politicians and for others on social media, is it going away anytime soon, Lindsay? It's not going away anytime soon. The genie is out of the bottle. You know, this all goes back to the Internet, right? The Internet isn't going to be shut off, and it has disrupted every single model, and it will disrupt. It has disrupted media. It will continue to disrupt media. It's disrupted politics and the way political campaigns are run, and it will continue, and it's disrupted what is reality and what is truth, and it will continue to. Uh, Interesting times in which we live. Lindsay, thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Talk to you. are listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. As I said in my commentary about an hour ago at, at 810, who's calling the shots with uh, the LRT file here in Hamilton? Uh, we had the uh, revelation uh, earlier this week, of course, that it looks as if there's going to be yet another change to the route for Hamilton's LRT. 
Paul Johnson uh, was on the program yesterday. He's the coordinator of this program for the city of Hamilton. And uh, he told us that uh, in all likelihood that what they call the spur line that's supposed to go from downtown to the Hamilton waterfront, probably along James Street, is off the books now. And that's not official, but apparently somebody has made a decision that it's not going to happen. And uh, they're going to allocate something else. And we don't know what. I mean, the speculation that we talked about yesterday on the show was that in all likelihood uh, it, there's going to be some added bus service, maybe rapid bus service, uh, up Upper James Street all the way up to the airport. So I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out, and I'm not quite sure how that's going to be accepted. But the bigger question is who's making these decisions? Even when you go back to the original original funding announcement when Premier Wynne showed up and they had the media conference over at McMaster and she announced the $1 billion for LRT. But it came with a caveat. It said, you know, you're not going from McMaster to Eastgate anymore. It's going to be only as far as the Queenston traffic circle, and we're going to put this spur line in. Well, now somebody else, and we don't know who, has decided, no, nah, that's not such a good plan after all. We're going to come up with another variation on that. And when I ask, I ask what I think is a pretty obvious question, who's making these decisions? This was not a debate at city council. I know individual councils have come up with all sorts of different ideas. Some just want to scrap it. Others are saying that, you know, the only one we should build is the one at the airport, and, and, and on and on it goes. But there has been no discussion about, well, let's, let's, let's alter this thing. So somebody's pulling the strings here, and I don't know who it is. Is it the province? Is it Metrolinx? Is it somebody on city council? Are there backroom meetings going on that we're not privy to? I got a problem with that. John Best joins us uh, from the Bay Observer, the publisher of the Bay Observer, to uh, talk about it and uh, get his take on this on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Good morning, John. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. I hope you're not expecting me to answer all those questions. In sequential order, John, I need (laughs) answers here. I'm not getting them from City Hall. I'm I'm not getting them from my sources at Queen's Park. What's going on here? Well, uh, it's chaotic, uh, I think, is the the answer. Uh, I I talked to uh, some people that uh, that are... close to the situation, and particularly at the Queen's Park level, and there's a bit of panic uh, going on uh, at Queen's Park, and you won't be surprised to learn that very little of this LRT stuff that's going on in Hamilton has much to do with any transit uh, metrics. It's it's really become highly political. Uh, You've got everything uh, stirred into the pot now. You've got the unpopularity of the premier, and there's there's concern about what's going to happen in the next election uh, if the liberals are are retrenched, uh, so that they really are just have an enclave of seats in the Toronto area where they still have some strength that they will definitely lose. And so they're looking around the province to try to find areas where they could gain ground. And, and Hamilton, in the, in normal times, would be an area where the Liberals could expect to pick up a couple of seats, uh, were it not for the current unpopularity of the of the government. But uh, the areas where they would pick, where they would look to pick up seats, are basically the Mountain and Stony Creek areas like that, where the LRT is extremely unpopular. So it's uh, it's a bit of a catch-22. There's also uh, what I'm hearing is uh, a bit of uh, actual, you won't believe this, but it's actual accounting. I believe anything at this point, John. Yeah. There's actually some accounting uh, issues going on. Uh, the, the feeling is that, it, for instance, uh, you know, you, you look at what was announced yesterday, and it seems that there is a, an ability to switch from 
a trolley system to a bus system, which is something we were told that just couldn't be done. Uh, what I'm hearing now is that uh, with the trolley system, uh, it can be written off over 30 years. So the you know the, essentially the deficit, which is another big issue. You know we've got a terrible financial situation. If you can write something off over 30 years, your your deficit in each individual year doesn't take such a big hit. But if you go to something like buses, uh, you know, the, the write-off is much quicker and, and your deficit gets expanded. So there's even, you know, those kind of uh, almost accounting issues that are that are sort of working into the thing. And it's, it's just become a muddled mess. I was uncomfortable at the time, and I think you and I had that discussion. I know we certainly did with uh, some of the uh, the representatives here. When when a government makes an announcement and says, "Here's the money, uh, and and we'll build as much of this as we can until we run out of money," that seems to be a, a, a rather perverted way of coming across. Instead of simply saying, "This is the project we're going to do, uh, and we're going to fund this for you," uh, because it's what's happened, I guess, and, and we're all just speculating now, is that they've got this funding envelope, but now they're not exactly sure how much this part's going to cost or this part's going to cost. And I'm wondering if they're doing this on the back of an envelope. Because somebody's saying you don't have enough money to do that. Well, they're certain they're certainly giving the impression that they're making it up as they go along. No kidding. Uh, all, all this swinging around uh, does not instill confidence, even by people that, that are supportive of the project. Well, I, I don't know if you heard my inter- interview with Donna Skelly yesterday, the counsel for Ward Seven, uh, and Donna, of course, uh, when she ran in that by-election, was, was opposed to. So, I mean, she's been consistent about this all through this this whole thing. But as she said, uh, this is only adding fuel to the fire of those that are skeptical about this, saying you guys don't know what you're doing. Well, it, it certainly uh, does not instill confidence to to see these changes, and I guess I guess you know it, it even uh, undermines confidence. For instance, we we got a ruling from the uh, from the integrity commissioner that that any uh, change, uh, fundamental change in this project or canceling it would require a two thirds vote. But if the province can unilaterally change routes, change modes uh, from trolley to bus, uh, to some degree, I think it undermines even that uh, notion. Well, which begs the question that I go back to initially, who's making these decisions? Uh, Is the province doing this uh, at the behest of city council? Is this a backdoor way to get away from uh, revising the plan? Is somebody at Queen's Park or Metrolinx making these decisions? Uh, and, and again, I, I drew the analogy this morning, John, about the stadium debate, and I don't want to go down that road about all those sore details, but it was pretty obvious to a lot of people that there were some backroom dealings going on uh, between local politicians and, and Queen's Park at that time that just about scuttled the whole deal, and I'm afraid we're going down that same road again. Well, I think, I think what you're getting in this case is you're getting competing backroom conversations. So obviously you're getting on the political side, clearly the mayor is pushing very hard for this project to be not only uh, completed but to be expedited as quickly as possible but i think there's uh, there are other groups in the city uh, who are connected to queen's park who are telling quite a different story so what you're getting at queen's park is uh, to some degree uh, uh, a microcosm of what you're getting here where there's really two factions starting to form uh, around this issue and uh, uh, at the end of the day, my view is that the political side will win, but, uh, you know, let's see what happens. But I, I think the, what the, you know, the sharp debate that we're seeing here in Hamilton is now, to some degree, been transferred to Queen's Park. 
And what are they saying in those halls or behind those closed doors? Because whatever they're saying, they're not saying it publicly. Uh, now, as far as the, the cancellation of the James Street North uh, LRT piece, I, I started hearing that um, about six weeks ago that, you know, they were looking at the project, and I'm, I'm sure they're, you know, they're, they're projecting forward uh, about cost overruns. Uh, I mean, we know that's almost an inevitability, and so I, easily that would be the easiest piece to chop off uh, since... You know, there was a lot of confusion about where it was going to go, whether it was going to go down Bay Street or James. And then you got the other issue of this, you know, we've just gone through a, a five, ten years of uh, tremendous revitalization on James Street. We've got all these uh, uh, sharp little restaurants and we've got all kinds of stuff going on there, uh, you know, and the art scene and everything. And to put that into limbo for five years with construction, I don't think it was... You know, even, you know, some of the James Street North crowd you'd normally associate with being pro-LRT, but I think their vision is more the east-west than something that's going to run in front of their boutique or their their restaurant. Let me connect the dots then, and let's go back to that initial, that funding announcement when they made that decision to say, oh, by the way, you're not going to Eastgate Square, you're going down James Street. Mm-hmm. Who made that decision? Uh, you know, again, I asked the question at that time, and nobody seemed to want to give any answers. Uh, was it was it mandated from Queens Park? Is it something that some city councilor had? Uh, and, and again, you know, the comments I heard from Mayor Eisenberger this week about this was, well, I'm not sure that the province did a cost-benefit study when they made that announcement that there was going to be a link to the waterfront, and now they've done it. Well, that tells me, again, they don't know what they're doing. In other words, they made an announcement about a change to the route, and they didn't know how much it was going to cost or what the implications were going to be? You know, well, who's running that. the show here? Yeah, not only that, where's the cost-benefit analysis for the entire project? Well, I, there's I, an idea. I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, you know what this does? For for people like yourself and me and not for a lot of other people that, that are, are, are supportive of this idea, it, it's it's getting to the point where we're getting frustrated too. And I'm like, I talked to somebody earlier this week after this whole thing came to, to light that's opposed to LRT, and, and I said, well, I still support the idea of this. And they said, well, which one? Is, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let me check my watch. What time is it? There's probably another variation on the theme right now. Like, get your act together, people. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, what we're witnessing is, is public policy on the fly, um, huge amounts of uh, public money. Uh, uh, I mean, let's face it, if, if it wasn't for the fear of being the person that, was responsible for blowing this so-called billion-dollar gift. I, I think council would be very strongly lined up at this point. Uh, as it is, we have about eight of them. We haven't heard a peep out of them. But uh, this is the year when uh, when the, when these people are going to have to face up to the issue uh, one way or the other. And uh, I think it's going to be. I think we're in for a real rocky year, to be quite honest. From an accountability standpoint, there have been three or four different councillors that have been quoted in various sources over the last couple of days saying, oh, yeah, I've heard this, and, yeah, the, my sources tell me. Why do they know this stuff and nobody in the public does? Like, who's talking to whom here? Well, and, and that was a question I asked. Like, uh, you know, when, when these public uh, workshops are being held, these LRT meetings, and there was one earlier this week, and uh, staff are up there in a very awkward position of trying to answer questions, and, and the, the, the consistent answer we get to most of the questions is that we don't know yet or it hasn't been negotiated which suggests 
that there are some kind of ongoing negotiations. So, so my question is, who's on our negotiating team? Who's who who's at the table, and w- when are these talks taking place, and who's doing it? I mean, in the previous uh, administration, uh, council passed a resolution that the mayor had to have a minder if he was going to go to Queens Park. They they didn't really follow through with executing that, but no, they uh, just executed the mayor. Well, yeah, but. Uh, helped him understand that there were probably brighter lights elsewhere. But, uh, you know, I don't know who's negotiating on our behalf, and I'm, I'm amazed the council isn't asking that question. You know, are there talks going on, and if so, who's there, and what authority to make deals do they have? And what deals are they making? And, and what deals are they making, if any? So I don't, you know, and, and if none of that is happening, if there are no talks going on, then what we're basically getting are... are uh, fiats uh, coming down from Queens Park, I guess. And and let's let's assume, which is all we can do at this point, that the, the the stories that we've heard is okay. They're going to kill this this spur line, and the, the James Street thing is off the books now. And they're going to do some form of of, uh, of rapid ready or something from downtown up to the airport, uh, and which you would figure John has to be Upper James. Yeah. All right. And, and I'm in my mind's eye, I'm looking at this, and I drive that road a lot. Uh, Upper James is one of the most congested streets in the city now. Uh, and if they're going to do a rapid transit system, that usually means a dedicated bus line. And boy, that went over like a lead balloon when they tried to do it on King Street. What's going to happen if they try to do it on Upper James now? Is it going to well, be a pilot I, I, project? Are they going to do this? How are they going to reconfigure traffic? What about the businesses there that are going to be impacted? What a, you know, On and on it goes. Yeah, I, I don't see how they can, you know, it's mixed traffic as it stands now, uh, so it, it would require for, for there to be any element of rapidity uh, that they're going to have to uh, have some kind of dedicated right away, and you're absolutely right. And then you'd also need some kind of signal control, uh, which is certainly technical, technically possible, uh, but uh, no, it's, uh, it's a big unanswered question. If you're going southbound on Upper James, towards Rymel, in other words, and you're up around Stone Church, and you want to turn into Denninger's, or you want to go into uh, to Marshall's department store or something, you want to make a left turn, John. You have to wait a day and a half because of the traffic volume. And I'm talking any weekday. I'm not talking just on Saturdays. It's like that now. Have they have they done a feasibility study about this? I'm going to guess no. Well, And again, they're doing this on the back of an envelope. It's a six-lane street and uh, already highly congested, so this would take it down presumably to four lanes, which... Uh, uh, would certainly be interesting, and you know the thing about James North is that it is uh, from one end to the other. It's completely a commercial retail corridor. So uh, you talk about King Street, where, frankly, retail for a large stretch of King Street is really more or less non-existent. You don't really get into significant retail until you get into the core. Uh, but but Upper James is chock-a-block with retail from Fennel all the way up to Rymel. Actually, beyond Rymel now. Yeah, I, it, it it could end up being a, a real nightmare, uh, you know, just to try to make that work. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the, I I don't see uh, LRT as a rail line being much of a, pro, a prospect for uh, the A line, uh, simply because of the the escarpment issue, which is hasn't been adequately dealt with. Uh, you know, there's a problem getting electric trains up a grade that steep. So it probably would have been bus uh, at, at the end of the day anyway. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, though, it's the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring joins us. 
here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. And, of course, as per usual with uh, the town hall, we will open the lines up at 905-645-3221. That's our phone number, 645-3221. Star 9900 on the uh, cell phone is toll-free. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. And, of course, on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. You have questions, you have comments for the mayor of the city of Burlington, Rick Goldring. Uh, get them on now. And uh, we'll go to your phone calls, too, if you've got some calls and questions and comments for Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing. Uh, we'll do that in a few minutes. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year. I haven't seen you for a Bill, while. Happy How you New been? Year to you, too. It's great we, to be back. We were, uh, our, Rebecca and I were in the, your fair city last night, and I guess we were actually just a couple of blocks away from each other, as it turned out. We were uh, over by uh, the Mapleview Mall uh, neighborhood, generally, and I went to one of their fine restaurants there and visited some friends last night. You were busy, at a t- uh, as, as mayors are, at a, at a community meeting just a few blocks away from there. Yeah, we were at Aldershot Arena last night in the community room, uh, and uh, we were hosting a meeting of the Mayor's Millennial Advisory Committee. And uh, we had uh, Councillor Rick Craven actually talking about all the work that's happened in Aldershot over the last uh, 15 or 20 years and how the transformation of that whole Plains Road corridor has been quite significant. We still still have ways to go, but I'm thoroughly impressed at the progress that we've made in Aldershot along Plains Road over the last number of years or decade and a half or so. And in large part, it's uh, the result of the hard work of the councillor, Rick Craven. Um, But there are some hardworking citizens uh, in that particular part of Burlington that have worked very hard to come up with the Plains Road Village Vision. And then, of course, there's the Aldershot uh, Business Improvement Association. So, you know, one of my favorite expressions is you always measure progress. You never measure perfection, you measure progress. So I look at the progress that has happened along Plains Road and in Aldershot over the last uh, 15 years or so. And it's quite significant when you look at all the used car lots were there, all the old motels that were there, um, and all the gas stations that were there, and how Aldershot and the Plains Road corridor is slowly being transformed from a traditional uh, 50s, 60s suburban type of highway uh, to an urban main street. And uh, it's, it's taken a while to get where we are, and uh, um, clearly the foundation has been laid for more work to happen in the future. I, I like it. I mean, we used to spend a lot of time there when we were kids. Our folks would take us out there uh, to various things. The, the grocery store, which was a bingo hall at one time, but we used to go all the way up to King Road, and there was uh, Waldorf Orchards was there. We used to get our apples up there, because you, you tend to forget that. Really, just on the other side of the Queen Elizabeth way back in those days, if you went on King Road, it was all agricultural. I mean, there was not, not a whole lot of growth that was going on there, so we used to go out there and, and do that sort of thing. And, uh, of course, there was the old Canadian Tire store there and so many other uh, places along Plains Road, but it, it's been transformative. I, I, I like the residential aspect to it. I think it's been done in, in a very classy way, and I think it really enhances the neighborhood. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Rick gave a great presentation last night to the to the committee and talking about how Aldershot, how Plains Road has been transformed over the last uh, you know decade and a half or so. And he talked about the Aldershot Library, the the, the relocation of the Aldershot Library in the bottom of seniors' housing. Uh, the Halton region has some seniors' housing there in that particular building and how it was a six-story building and how it was a, one of the first six-story buildings in Aldershot and how the room was packed. Uh, of people very upset about the thought. I was going to ask you, how did that go? Six stories because anytime there are height <laughs> restrictions like that, because it, it's like this in Ancaster, uh, and and the, you know this is done back when they were towns, and Aldershot was just a, a small little area of Burlington at those times. So I, I'm sure you had some hurdles to accomplish what you did there, because I mean the buildings, I, I like what's there. I mean, uh, you know, multi residential has got to be a key aspect of infill development, and you guys have done that well, but probably not without a few. Uh, 
uh, bruises and bumps along the way. You know, it's interesting, Bill, when we talk about change, and we, none of us like change. You know, it's natural to be resistant to change. And also, we really don't like change when we feel it's being done to us and not for us. And the other thing is that we certainly have a, a, an impact bias, that we think the impact of a development decision in our neighborhood uh, is going to be much greater than it ends up being. So, again, you look at the library, and there was some debate about how much parking should be there, and a decision was, be made, was made to limit the parking. And as a result, uh, more and more people walk to the library, and uh, the library gets all sorts of you know, traffic, foot traffic, as well as bus traffic, as well as automobile traffic, and so on and so forth. But it's, it's really become a major center uh, in the neighborhood. But, but again, it wasn't easy at the beginning because there are all sorts of people opposed to the thought of six stories. But then you look at the history of Aldershot, and on, over the last, over the, it, during the 80s and 90s, the actual population of Aldershot went down. And it went down because uh, back in the 60s, the average persons per household and the height of the baby boom was about four and a half people per household. And then, of course, as the, um, as the children um, get older, or the baby, or the children of the baby boom get older, and they move away, and there was not enough opportunity for residential accommodation in Aldershot, they moved to other areas of the city, or they moved outside of Burlington. Um, so now the population of Aldershot is starting to increase again because of the new development that's taking place, and there's all sorts of more potential for new development, and particularly in the, in the area um, closer to the GO station. Well, and it's nice to see the way that's evolved because it was not done clearly on an ad hoc basis if you look at the developments and how those have occurred over over the last little while. And, and it has changed. I mean, because the residential component, even in the, when they started building there, was down by Hidden Valley Park and down there. In other words, out of sight. You couldn't right. really see a, a lot of the stuff that was going on. And you always wondered, you know, I referenced that old Canadian tire store that was there uh, and, and uh, by Waterdown Road. And, and of course, uh, there was a strip plaza in behind that at that time. And you got to figure, okay, at some time these things are going to go the way of, of the, the dodo bird, but what's going to come in its place? And you always wonder about that. Is it going to be just another great big you know, establishment, a Walmart or something like that? And, and, and instead you put multi-residential in there and, and enclaves, which is a really nice way of planning these things. In other words, not just a building and then maybe another one a couple of years later on, but there was a plan on how to develop that, that multi-residential neighborhood, wasn't there? Oh, no, a- absolutely. And, and a big part of it was the people from the Aldershot BIA, the Plainswood Village, Village Vision, setting out some expectation about what the community was looking for. And we were not looking for any more of the traditional one-story commercial-type buildings. And I I think back to when uh, the Shoppers Drug Mart uh, was proposed along Plains Road, uh, the new location there. And there was real concern about it just being a traditional one-story building. And the city insisted, and, and Rick Craven supported it wholeheartedly, the city insisted that it be a minimum two-story building. And there was a lot of resistance because that wasn't the model that Shoppers Drug Mart was operating under. But now there's medical offices that are ancillary, obviously, to the Shoppers Drug Mart that makes a lot of sense in that area and that we're utilizing the space more effectively than we did in the past. This is something I learned many, many years ago when I was first on city council back in the late 1990s in Hamilton. And I went to a planning conference in, in Boston, as it turned out, and uh, and the fact that it was right near the playoffs and the Bruins were in was totally con- you know coincidental. But anyway, uh, I learned about how these infill developments are going on, about how you actually make plans for residential and commercial along major arteries. And Plains Road is is still a major street. 
uh, is you put commercial on the bottom floor, and then you maybe maybe you know offices, lawyers' offices, uh, whatever architects, and residential above that, and and that's how you get the infill. You the same building, but you're actually it's serving three different purposes, and and I see that on Plains Road, and it's 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 almost like textbook planning for how you redevelop a neighborhood. Yeah, I know. We we as I say, we made great progress there. There's much more work to do. Uh, after uh, Councillor Craven's presentation last night uh, to the Millennial Advisory Committee, there was a presentation from city staff uh, from the planning department who are involved in the, in the mobility hub secondary planning that's going on around the Aldershot, Burlington, and Appleby GO stations as well as our downtown. And, uh, you know, we talked about the potential for, for the Aldershot GO station area. And, you know, eventually we're going to have all-day, 15-minute regional express rail service there within the next eight or nine years. And already uh, development uh, interest is so high in that particular area because of the way it's coming together, because of the regional express rail, uh, because the fact that Burlington is a desirable place to live and people can see the future of that area, that there's, you know, Councillor Craven said last night, there's uh, about 24 uh, pending uh, interests of development there. Not quite applications yet, but there's 24 parties looking at particular development uh, in the Plains Road area. So it's quite exciting. When I was uh, at, the, at the restaurant last night with our friends, uh, we got talking about this, and actually two of their, their kids that were just finishing university, uh, we got into this discussion, and, and, and that's why I was wanted to talk about this Millennial Advisory Committee that, uh, that you were uh, a party to last night. Because we got going on about millennials, and I was setting some surveys that were done. And one was reported in the National Post, another on uh, CBC over the last couple of days, about how the Hamilton-Burlington area, right at this head of the lake, has actually become a destination for millennials right now. Not just people that are millennials from this area that are staying, and that's a good news story, but people from other areas, and not just the GTA, but other areas, are looking at this place, at Hamilton and Burlington, as a place to, to move to, to start the, you know, their, their families, if that's what they want to do, and certainly to start their businesses. What's, what's the attraction, Rick? What, what did they see that, that some, for some generations we didn't see before? Well, I think, uh, you know, as much as, you know, the prices of housing in Burlington and Hamilton have gone up significantly in the last number of years, uh, on a relative basis compared to Toronto, uh, we are less expensive and certainly Hamilton is uh, as well. So I think that's a big attraction, number one. Uh, I think the gold the go, the go line's an attraction. Um, but I look at, you know, the older areas of Burlington. I look at the older areas of Hamilton. Hamilton's a city that's got great bones. It's got great history. It's got great great heritage with regard to the type of housing and, and uh, you know, some of the older commercial, industrial, warehousing uh, type of, uh, of development in this city lends itself to ideal redevelopment that does attract uh, millennials. I look at the food scene on King William um, and uh, some of the other areas in downtown Hamilton. Uh, you look at James Street North. Uh, you know, those areas are, are sort of raw material for creativity and innovation from a younger demographic that like living in a more urban vibe. There's another element to this, too, and there's a phrase that, that millennials use an awful lot of the time, and it's walkability. Uh, oh, yeah. They have vehicles, some. Some don't. But they love to be able to go, as you mentioned, with the library situation in that neighborhood we were just referring. Uh, they like to be able to go for a walk, or they like to be able to walk around in their neighborhood or in their community, whether it's to walk the dog or just to get some fresh air or things like this. It, it, that means a, a different mindset when you're planning a neighborhood then, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Millennials, unlike uh, people of our, our vintage, are not as tied to the automobile 
uh, as we are. I mean, we grew up with the automobile uh, as Burlington grew in the 60s and 70s. It was really built around the car. And now we're trying to retrofit uh, the development in Burlington, make it more desirable uh, for walkability, um, for cycling, as well as to make transit a really meaningful transportation option. But there's no question, millennials like the urban vibe. They like the ability to, to walk to coffee shops. Uh, they don't necessarily look at the need for a traditional single-family home where you, where you have a white picket fence and a good-sized backyard for kids to play in. Uh, they like living in an urban area as long as the urban area has appropriate amenities and appropriate amenities for young families and, and, and some, some green space and some public amenity space and town squares and, and coffee shops and pubs and restaurants and retail stores and so on and so forth. That's what millennials are looking for. And it's not just millennials. That's what a lot of aging baby boomers are looking for but you know is that urban lifestyle. You know what's interesting about that? Because everything just it's almost like there's never a new idea. It's just everything goes full circle. And, and what you've just described, which, which uh, and I totally agree with, is basically how our parents or grandparents used to live back in the, in the 1930s and 40s. It was all about neighborhoods then, wasn't it? Uh, the cars were around, but not everybody could afford a car back in those days. So you wanted a, a neighborhood restaurant, and that's where you went if you had a, a night out, or a neighborhood bar if you wanted to go and have a beer. Uh, there's hardly any TVs back then, so they didn't watch the game. But, I mean, to, to be able to, to socialize and do those sorts of things uh, and to be able to go walking in your neighborhood or sit out in your neighborhood and talk to your neighbor from, you know, on the next porch or something. We don't have the porches anymore necessarily, but you have enclaves. It's it's almost like we're reinventing that. I, I don't know what the, the millennials like to take credit for it and say it's ours, but it's not really. It's something that was there, and we kind of got away from it, and now we're, we're going back to that now. No, exactly. I mean, you know, there was, I would say, there was a lot of urban intimacy, if that's such a... Yeah. A term, uh, you know, back in the 1900s, and you know, before the advent of the uh, motor vehicle, um, there was a lot of planning around that to make sure the planning was more more dense. But of course, with the advent of the automobile, uh, it become very easy to to move outside of our our major downtown cores. And you know, you look at Hamilton. I mean, that's how well. Burlington was a suburb, could, could be called a suburb of Hamilton years ago. And so, so many people worked in Burlington, or worked in uh, Hamilton, but lived in Burlington. People uh, worked in Hamilton, lived in Ancaster, lived in Dundas, lived in Stony Creek, lived in Waterdown, and so on and so forth. Uh, but now people are, are, are looking at, they don't necessarily want to have to drive everywhere when there's an alternative to that. And the alternative is using meaningful transit, having good solid transit, uh, having good neighbors, our neighborhoods that are that are designed in such a way that makes it easy to walk to 95% of the services and goods that you require on a daily basis. You want to be close to a grocery store, a hardware store, a liquor store, a beer store, a drug store, and so on and so forth. So clearly, you're right, Bill, we're coming back to that uh, compared to what we've been as far as building suburbia. And that's a big focus of the province's places to grow plan, to really encourage much more density to preserve our green space, um, so we can protect it for agriculture and natural areas and so on and so forth, but we have to be more efficient in how we use the land inside our urban boundary. Well, and it's not just a matter of preserving green space. In some cases, it's a matter of creating green space. And, and I'll go back to that old strip mall where the Canadian Tire was on, on Plains Road where you've got those fabulous buildings right now, but they're built on almost an enclave style where there's common areas between the buildings, green areas with walking paths, benches, things of this nature. That's, you've created a park there, right in the middle of a residential area. 
No, ab- ab- absolutely, absolutely. But but again, we've only just really, I would say we've really just begun on the Aldershot Go Station Mobility Hub area. We're doing this work that's going to come to fruition in the next 18 months or so, and we're going to be developing a secondary plan, really defining in much more detail than we have right now the type of development we want to see there. I think we want to, we know what we want to see on a broad basis, but we need to be more uh, specific with the land that's already there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.